Welcome to The Alternative Investor, the show where we discuss, debunk, and demystify all things about investing in alternative assets. Hello, everyone. Today, we have our first guest on the podcast. It's Brent Bishore from Adventures, a private equity company that, frankly, looks and sounds nothing like a private equity company. Over the last 10 years, Brent has built a compound cash flow machine that simply buys businesses at fair prices without using a lot of debt and then adds operational value when appropriate. It sounds simple enough. Of course, it's not simple at all. We dive into his tactics for sourcing deals and hear his insights on company valuations, deal killers, operations, and his fund structure, which is a permanent capital vehicle. Permanent capital enables Brent to reinvest profits and the best opportunities across the portfolio to compound returns. We love this structure, and it enables Brent to focus on delivering high, sustainable returns, which he's clearly done. Okay, here we go. Please enjoy this interview with Brent Bishore. Hey, welcome to the show, Brent. Let's just kick it off with maybe you start off with your background, give us a brief snapshot of your life and, and how you got into this crazy business that you're in right now. Yeah, well, first, thanks, guys, for having me on. I, uh, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Joplin, Missouri and went to school in Virginia and then came back to get my law degree and my MBA at Mizzou. Where I met my wife, started a business, and then dropped out and never got my law degree or my MBA. So interesting genesis there. But yeah, what was the, what was the business? Just out of curiosity. So the the very first business was an event marketing firm, which at the time, so this is 2007. You talk about a great time to get into business for the first time. time. 2007. Event marketing was kind of a hot, cutting-edge marketing strategy technique, and had a good friend of mine whose wife wanted to uh, start the business, and and she asked me to come on as as the uh, business end of things, which I still don't know what that means, and that was probably a good warning sign that things were not going to go uh, as we had planned. Neither of us had ever started a company before, so a lot of the things that I've learned, unfortunately, I've learned from just hitting my face on the pavement over and over again. So, but yeah, that was a event marketing company. You know, Adventures really got off the ground. I would say once we started getting some momentum. So, so that business didn't go great, but it led into starting a, a marketing firm, which led into starting a research firm, a film company and a software development firm. And, and, you know, that kind of led into a variety of other things. I mean, you know, entrepreneurship is not a straight line, right? It's a, it's a very zigzag. There's a lot of uh, two steps forward, one step back. And, you know, my career certainly been that. Um, and then, you know, almost accidentally acquired a company in St. Louis that really gave me a window into small business ownership transitions. And, you know, we can get into a lot more of that later, but it, you know, really opened my eyes and, and ended up seeing a much bigger opportunity there. And, and we ended up building adventures kind of really starting, you know, nine-ish years ago into what it is today. So you have a very interesting background. I um, And I'm sure it gives you a great perspective into some of the businesses that you're you're currently looking at when you've sort of gone through a lot of this stuff on your own. So let's let's talk about what you're currently doing. So you're, you're the CEO and founder of Adventures. I guess I would call you guys a private equity firm. Brad and I talk a lot about private equity venture and real estate on this show. So let, I guess I would put you kind of in that category. Maybe just talk about you know, sort of how you got into the firm, you know, what, what are you guys all about? I think you guys have some really interesting philosophies and some interesting, um, you know, some content on your website. It's sort of, it's very clear that what you stand for and, and what's important to you guys. So I'd love to hear you kind of talk a little bit about your firm. 
Yeah, well, so I, you know, it's funny is that I started doing private equity before I knew what private equity was. So I don't come from a finance background. Uh, I didn't work for another financial services firm and uh, truly had no intention of ever building a private equity firm until December of last year. We described ourselves as a family of companies, but it had been all, all the capital that we had generated was just rolled forward and uh, compounded for you know the better part of a decade. So it was a combination of the entrepreneurial ventures, the acquisitions that we made, you know, a variety of things we got involved in. And it was really just, there's no grand plan. It was just take the resources in front of us and deploy them thoughtfully and, and try to, you know, be smart about it. And, you know, in December, we took on our, our first tranche of, of outside capital in a very unusual structure, which, you know, happy to talk about that if, if that's of interest. Oh, it is. Um, but <laughs> sure. yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so to so clarify, we then, when you yeah. were funding new acquisitions after your first company, out of just straight cash flow, there wasn't like a, a refinance situation. Yeah. It was just pure cash flow. Yeah. So just, I mean, it, look, one of the advantages of living in Missouri is uh, cost of living. And we've just been frugal. We've been, you know, we were frugal about how we went about things. We we, we had some things that paid off that uh, certainly didn't have to. But um, you know, over time, we just slowly started building, and uh, yeah, and ended up you know doing doing better than we deserved. But then we, you know, in December, took on this outside capital, which really gave us the ability to scale far beyond, at least you know, the pace far beyond what we were able to do before. I love that story where you kind of started off organically. You know, you start off as an entrepreneur, so then you got into acquiring businesses, kind of coming out of that, and then you sort of evolved into probably what's more of a full-fledged private equity fund. Because that's not a small point, right? I mean, there's plenty of private equity guys that come from other private equity firms to start their own private equity business, and they never really build up their operational chops. Yeah. So yeah. it's harder for them to analyze deals and see kind of where the landmines are, and I imagine that that gave you a leg up. Well, I think it gives us a leg up and, and a leg down in other areas, right? I mean, all all life decisions come with opportunity costs, and the opportunity costs that we have, uh, the upside of them are that, you know, we do have an operational background. We think of companies as operators, as long term owners, which makes us, you know, quite a bit different than the industry norm. The, the downside is that, you know, frankly, all the obvious stuff in the finance world that you would just know if you worked for another private equity firm, it spun out of a, you know, a bigger shop. You know, not all that stuff's obvious to us. And so we've reinvented the wheel, I think, and wasted a lot of time and money on on things that maybe we shouldn't have, made a lot of mistakes. And and I, I guess, you know, we've got a new round of hires here coming in soon. You know, no, no one's ever worked in another private equity firm that works at Adventures which is um, both good and bad, right? <laughs> There's no free lunch. Yeah. So, but we, yeah, we, I think we, we are able to relate to sellers and, and the operating teams, the leadership of, of the companies in a way that seems to be unusual in the, in the private equity space. I mean, again, we've never worked in another private equity firm, so we don't know, but people tell us that the questions we ask and the way we go about things is, is much more operationally friendly and far less financing focused. We're not trying to do financial engineering. We're not trying to, you know, flip these companies. I mean, we're truly trying to replicate a long-term family ownership structure and apply it to a, a very big and growing problem, which is there are far more sellers than there are buyers. And the capital alignment between the people that have the resources to be able to transition these firms typically just don't align with a family structure. So you end up getting into a traditional private equity structure where it's two and 20 and you have to, to flip the portfolio, you know, at a minimum every five years. 
And it really just it creates completely different dynamics and incentives for uh, the operations of the firm. Yeah, and it's yeah, I love this story because I think oftentimes it feels like private equity and venture and real estate private equity, these are like very mysterious worlds where unless you kind of went to the, an Ivy League school and went took an investment banking job right out of college and then, you know, migrated into one of these firms, like these these were kind of off limits, but you came about this in such a different way. So I just I like hearing that. Yeah. Well, I've been very fortunate, more, more than I deserve. So. so why don't you touch on a little bit about the makeup of your portfolio? You know, what kind of companies you guys like, what you currently have, what you're looking for? Yeah, great question. So we have uh, current seven portfolio companies. We have five that are um, sort of we call them fund one that are part of the core adventures family of companies before we raise the fund. So those are internal capital only. Then we have two companies that we've acquired this year uh, as part of the fund. So we have a very specialized construction firm uh, out in Arizona. We have two manufacturing firms out there, a third that we just acquired. All of those are in Arizona are, are in the backyard space. So in, in some ways, um, pool building, you know, sort of toys and consumer products for and utility products for the pool space, as well as some really interesting technology that uh, that we partner with with people on to uh, put into swimming pools. So it's a really interesting portfolio. We're, we're big on uh, the sort of secular trends in that segment of the market, especially in that geography. And we can go into a little bit later, you know, how if you guys are interested, how we think about the thesis. Uh, so we always have kind of a big thesis for uh, each investment. Let's see, we, we own a uh, content marketing firm, very specialized content marketing firm. We own a uh, glass and glazing company, and um, I think that rounds out the portfolio. Yeah, oh, a military recruitment firm. That was the very first company. So, yeah, it's a very diverse portfolio. Um, I think the common theme across all of them, they're, they're things that um, are needed that we think are going to be a lot around for a very long time. And yeah, we're, we're trying to serve our customers well through all of them. Yeah, I guess it's hard to disrupt the, the pool, right? Yeah. Well, so, so we have this joke that until people stop dipping their bodies in water for pleasure, we'll be fine, uh, <laughs> which is kind of the, the, the joke. I mean, you know, for the, for the glazing company that, that we own, very specialized, uh, high spec uh, glazing company, you know, the, the joke there, uh, I shouldn't say joke, the thesis is, you know, until glass stops being an integral part of the building process, especially in urban environments, we'll be fine. Right. So we just try to get involved in things that we think they have a competitive advantage. I mean, obviously, the, the analysis goes far beyond that. And we got to buy them at the right price. And we've got to make sure the leadership teams are, are structured appropriately. And we have you know, the right talent in the companies and all those things. But, I mean, the, the base at the end of the day, you, you, know, you, you don't want to be rowing a, uh, a leaky boat. And we certainly don't want uh, some massive secular headwind uh, in our face, that's that's going to be almost impossible to overcome, no matter the the quality of the scene. That makes sense, and it, so I think it's I think it would be interesting to talk through, you know, because on the surface, you know, it's easy to say, okay, look, we you know we love this business, we think it's a great business, got great customers, good cash flow, but as you start to, you know, in my experience, as I've gone out there and looked at businesses, and I'm sure you feel the same way, once you start you start digging into an industry or understanding it better, and of course, you're always going to encounter things that give you pause or, or might give you some concern. I think it would be interesting to kind of talk through that. Like, let's take the uh, the pool company, right? Yeah, I mean, you invested in a company called Presidential Pools, Spas, and Patio, right? And it's in, that's in Arizona? Mm-hmm. Correct. So I think, you know, someone could look at that and feel, look, look I get it. You know, pools are, are you know expensive and, and there's probably some good margin there. But it's also probably pretty cyclical, I would imagine. So how did right. you how did you guys get comfortable with some of the, 
you know, maybe the, the downsides of a deal like that and in, in specifically cyclicality and sort of when people are buying and building pools? Well, so this is actually a really interesting, uh, maybe a difference between the way we look at things and how a traditional buyer would. So we don't, we're not afraid of cyclicality. We certainly don't want to pay an elevated multiple on, on peak earnings, right, uh, in terms of the where we are in the cycle. But at the same time, you know, business cycle, life cycles, like that's a normal part of, of operations. And I think it gets it gets dangerous when you assume that there isn't cyclicality. So we just assume every business we're going to look at has a, a pretty good band of cyclicality, you know, peak to trough. And the pool business, of course, is, is cyclical. It is a, depending on how you look at it, I mean, when you, when you live in an oven, it's uh, less of a discretionary good, but uh, it is it is certainly more discretionary than other things. And um, there is, you know, the pool industry is notorious for cyclicality. And I think that how you structure deals and in general, where, where we sort of default to is very low leverage and uh, fully loaded balance sheets at close that give us the ability to withstand quite a bit of volatility in the business. And, you know, you build enough redundancy and, a, and enough um, stability into the business. And I think then you can, you know, if everything goes great, it's wonderful. You make a little less money. Um, but you don't, you know, you don't go under. And so we actually look at, at cyclicality as being a um, pretty key advantage. If we can be the ones that can withstand cyclicality and even be an aggressive buyer uh, when there are, you know, down cycles, uh, we think that's a, that's a really big long-term advantage for us that really provides a, a durability to our uh, sort of competitive positioning compared to other private equity firms that really just can't be overcome. I mean, if you have to churn your portfolio, you are at the whim to buy of the market and you're at the whim to sell of the market. I mean, there's just no way around it. Um, versus when we buy, we have no intention of ever selling the companies. So we can, uh, doesn't mean we would never would sell, but we just have no intention and we run them with a long-term family-like focus. That's interesting. So you, I think you would probably agree with this statement then that volatility does not equate to risk. I, th- I think that volatility in a traditional financing scheme absolutely equals risk, but you're adding that risk in that's not organic to the business model. Meaning if you layer something with, you know, four times EBITDA of senior debt and another tranche or two of, of sub debt, and you really are taking all free cash flow out of the business, not reinvesting it, and you're just trying to pay down that debt. Yeah, I mean, what happens if you have a slight bump in the road, let alone a, a major down cycle? I mean, the business implodes. And I think that is risk. If you don't put leverage, you know, financial leverage, and you don't do other operating leverage things, I mean, we could talk about this idea of leverage is, goes way beyond just financial. But, you know, as long as you structure the company so that you maybe make a little less money in a given year, but you are intentionally trying to create a durability and sustainability to cash flows, I think that cyclicality, just by the nature of how everyone else has to do it is is a big tailwind to us long term. Got it. But under normal financing, it sounds like you guys aren't you know putting mes debt on these and levering up to ninety percent like a traditional private equity leveraged buyout. Right. This is low leverage stuff where you can feel comfortable that over the year you're going to have plenty of money to service your debt. Correct. Yeah. I mean, so the we even go maybe even a step beyond that. So the last two deals we've done uh, were all equity plus seller debt at close. So we oh, actually brought beautiful. no no senior lender involved and the debt terms are very friendly um, because the people care about the companies, right? Like we want to find people, you know, we think about the world in creating selection biases. 
where we want the people who we do deals with to care deeply about their companies, which ripples into caring deeply about their employees, which ripples into employees caring deeply about their customers. And and if you find that, you're typically going to find somebody who's willing to sell to you in a structure that they get the volatility. They've been in the business for a long time. And they say, of course, the worst thing in the world for them is they walk away with a bunch of cash and then the business implodes and everyone suffers, right? Because, I mean, yeah, they, they maybe got a little richer than they would have otherwise. But but at the end of the day, a lot of these people, if they're not already wealthy, we're not going to buy the business from them. Yeah, no, I, right? I, mean, I, I love yeah. that. I love trying to get seller carry or seller financing in any deal because that, that tells you that the owner or the seller tends to have confidence in the deal, right? He's not He's got skin in the game after he or she has skin in the game after he sells property or asset. Correct. And it does provide a nice a little bit of financial leverage to the deal as well as aligning interests. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. This, there's so much here, Brent. So it's interesting, right? So one thing you said was that um, you're willing to hold these things for a long time. And it sounds like you say, hey, we never even plan on selling them. Of course, if someone gave you a silly number at some point, you would. How do you have that liberty with your fund where you can hold a deal uh, sort of indefinitely? Is that, I mean, is that, was that just something you sort of documented and you knew that was important to you and that's, you found money that was willing to be patient like that? <laughs> It's a great question. Uh, well, since I didn't know any better, I, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't know what I was asking for it was ridiculous. Uh, apparently, it turns out it was. And uh, uh, my pitch to investors when I first met with them was plan on never getting your capital back, uh, which is an interesting uh, sorting the uh, uh, sorting the investors you're, into the original markets. capital. Right? They they get cash flow, but they don't. You're saying the original nut. You're right. Right. The principal. Correct. Yeah. The, the principal. We 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 don't want to um, ever have to be forced to sell an asset for the wrong reasons, right? I mean, there are plenty of great reasons to, for a transaction to come about. I mean, let's remember these sellers that we're buying the businesses from, they're selling the business. So obviously there's nothing inherently wrong about selling a company. There's only something inherently wrong with selling a company if your incentives to do so are, are different than your other stakeholder groups. And so, yeah, the way we structured the fund was uh, it's a 27 year life cycle after year 25, uh, have the ability to continue forward if everyone's on board and uh, provide some liquidity if people aren't. And so functionally, what that does is it's it's permanent capital. Um, it, it allows us to, to buy with no time horizon and to just really focus on treating people well and, and all winning together. So the structure, in essence, then, did you guys think about how the tax implications of, I guess, are you reinvesting dividends each year or are people taking cash we out? We can. Yeah. Well, so it's, it's completely at our discretion. Um, the investors trust us to make good long-term uh, decisions for the business. So if we see high probability, high return opportunities to redeploy capital, uh, we will absolutely do that. I mean, that's as a family would. I mean, think think about the way we're structured at Adventures as being identical to the the incentives of a let's call it let's call it well functioning family. I'm sure there are some dysfunctional families out there that do things really poorly, but when we think of a family owned business, somebody that that is thoughtful stewards of capital long term. That's the way we want our incentives to be, and that's the way we structure them. So uh, when it makes sense to redeploy capital back into the portfolio, we'll do so. And when it makes more sense to uh, dividend it back out, we will do that as well. I love that. And do you have discretion then, or is that a vote? Complete discretion. That's wonderful. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, and I mean, it's, it's, look, we, we have great investors. I mean, honestly, you know, kudos to them uh, for, for allowing us to do what we're doing. Yeah, no, it sounds like you have very patient, limited partners in your in your group. That's correct. We, we, we hit the jackpot. Interesting. And so you said another thing where, you know, you're, you're basically the sellers that you're, that you like and that you're buying deals from, they care about the business, they care about the long-term health of the business. And so 
you know, they like the, you know, they probably like you. They like the way your fund is structured. Do you find that these sellers, are you in a competitive situation in a lot of these deals where there's other bidders and you're actually coming in at a, maybe a slightly lower price given some of the other advantages? In my experience, it's, you know, people say they care about their business and they say they care about their employees and then someone comes in with a 10% higher offer and that turns out that's more important. How do you, how do you get around that? So I think 90% of the, of the people we chat with, um, the, the joke that, that we say is that money's not the most important thing unless you're not the highest bidder, right? Like, I mean, it <laughs> totally. ulti- ultimately comes down to who's going to write me the, the biggest check at close and, and at the highest valuation. So um, there's 10% of people out there who, I, who ultimately price matters. Like, let's not joke around, right? I mean, if we weren't, if we weren't paying a uh, in the ballpark of market uh, multiple on these, on these companies, we wouldn't be getting deals done, right? Um, so uh, we're in the ballpark. Now, are people willing to uh, structure deals differently with us based on how we're able to uh, operate the companies post-close and the track record we have? Yeah, I think they are. Do we get outrageous deals? No, of course not. Right. And nor are we trying to. I think that's the, you know, the misconception in deal making is that, you know, whoever whoever gets, you know, pulls one over on the other party at close is sort of the winner. And, and we just fundamentally don't subscribe to that. If it's not a win win for not just the seller and the buyer, I think that's another thing that like the stakeholder group matters and is far wider than just the seller and the buyer. And we really try to take that into account. We want to be, you know, great partners to the leadership team. We want to be, um, want the employees across the company to be proud of where they work. They're in communities. We want to support the communities we're involved in. Uh, regulators in some of these industries are incredibly important, right? We want them to think highly of us. We want to be a, a shining light potentially in a, in a, you know, a dark place, right? Um, so these are a lot of, you know, a, a lot of, and of course the customers, right? I mean, I, I didn't even mention customers. I mean, of course we're serving customers, you know, above all else. And I think that if you create a deal uh, where it's clear that you're maybe trying to, ch- you know, sort of shortchange all the other stakeholders to be able to give the seller the most at close and then putting the future of the company at jeopardy, or not even the future jeopardy, but it really limits your decisions when you, you know, bet the farm and put a lot of leverage on the company. It just stresses everything, right? You can't make the hires, you can't make the reinvestments, and, and frankly, you're going to have to cut corners with customers. And this is where you get a you know sort of natural erosion effect to these businesses long term, uh, which is why you got to flip them quick. I think that's been unfortunately a, a dominant part of the uh, buyout business for a long time. Is you know get them in the door, tune them up, you know make them look a little bit prettier, and then get them out the door. And we just don't, you know, it's just a completely different way of looking at them. The way we would do. Yeah, and it's it's true. And I think that a lot of the listeners of this podcast might not even appreciate how different your approach is, just given that you're our first guest. So I know I think you know we're kind of alluding to the fact you know we keep saying traditional private equity firms, but yeah, you know most of the time a private equity firm will put a reasonable amount of debt or even more than a reasonable amount of debt on a business. And in order to cover the interest payment on that debt, you have to have some pretty good years. And if it, if a business is cyclical, that can get scary. You might miss your numbers. Um, and then, you know, the, the investors in most private equity firms want to get paid back in five to seven, 10 years. And so there's a, there's a, some pressure to sell a company. And so I think everything you're saying is, is pretty contrarian in this world. I just want to make that point. 
Appreciate that. I mean, it just makes sense to us, though. I mean, again, we haven't we we started from a, a blank slate. We you know we don't have we don't have a history in the industry. So we just said, what would make the most sense to us if we were a seller? What would make the most sense to us if we were uh, the leadership team in place, the customers? What would make us happy and and create a sustainable situation? And we just try to get it done. All right. So given that you don't have the shot clock, right, the pressure of that three five year time horizon before you have to flip it like a traditional private equity firm would, how do you still you know, keep a sense of urgency in your operations. And, you know, when you're managing these things remotely from thousands of miles away, potentially, you know, how do you make sure that the family owned business continues to run and is, is doing the things you want to see in the company? Well, so I think maybe uh, we start from a slightly different position, which is these companies um, have a natural drive to serve their customers. So if we come into an organization and there's a uh, sort of sleepy, lackadaisical approach, um, you know, there's just low in engagement across the board. It's just not going to be an attractive opportunity for us to get involved in. So we want to get involved first and foremost. And this comes back to, again, the selection bias of, you know, what we're getting involved in. But we want to get involved with, with organizations that are going to be successful without us. Uh, and then we hopefully are able to add some value along the way. Uh, these are also independently staffed firms. So we are not, quote unquote, running the operations from a distance. They are completely autonomously being run. Uh, and I think that maybe even the biggest surprise to a lot of the leadership teams is, is how uh, hands-off in almost every way we are. And maybe we're a little more hands-on in certain areas than they may expect. Um, but for the most part, we say, look, you're, you've got the track record. You've got the experience. You're the experts. You know, all of our incentives are aligned. You make decisions that you believe are in the best interest of the firm. We'd like to stress test, you know, perhaps some of the bigger decisions, depending on the situation. Uh, but we really trust them to uh, do a good job. And they do. Everyone just wants to, you know, do their thing and live a good life. Try right. to provide that for them. So you're putting guardrails then on certain decisions. I imagine maybe some capital items, right? A certain dollar amount, I would imagine, before they got to yeah, get clearance. Yeah, it's different for every company. I think it's more of a conversation. So what we say to them is, if you think we should be aware of it, then we probably should be aware of it. Got it. Right. Um, and usually that is enough uh, for them to let us know because, I mean, you start getting into dollar volume and, you know, let's say you had a $50 million firm that churns, you know, let's say churns their product five times a year, six times a year, well, you're going to have large purchase orders, right? So like, we don't want to be in a position to be scrutinizing purchase orders and transit fees. And I mean, things like that just don't make sense, right? Now, if they're going to say, okay, guess what? We've decided to launch a completely new line of business. Okay, we probably need to talk about that, right? Like, that's something we should we should chat about. And we should, uh, I'm sure that if you're bringing it to us, that it's a uh, worthwhile opportunity. We also bring to them ideas that we have of, of which most of them they're like, yep, we've thought about that. And here's why we don't want to do it. Beautiful. Wonderful. Right. That's, there's no, there's no ego of authorship. Brent, in, in most cases, are you dealing with the CEO kind of founder who's selling the business and is he stepping away and, and there's a management team in place that's kind of taking over? Is that the most common situation? Or are you actually hiring other operators to come in sometimes? You know, I, I would say that the t- Two dominant situations are a, uh, a seller who wants a, a very specific type of assistance that we feel like we can provide or to de-risk the situation, but still wants to be involved for a pretty extensive period of time. Okay, so he wants um, to take some money off the table, but he wants to stay involved and he's going to still run the business. Correct. And we, you know, we're just an ideal home for those types of people, right? I mean, we are just because we, we truly do provide them the, you know, I would call it 95%, 97% of the autonomy that they previously had, they get to retain with us. 
The other situation uh, that I would say is the second most common is there is a leadership team in place. Uh, the, the, the owner is either the CEO or kind of a chairman role, and they're able to start taking steps back. So what we say is we don't have to have a complete plan figured out, you know, who's going to be running the company for the next 10 years. Who knows what the future holds, right? But we at least want to have a plan for what we know now. How does that transition look like over time? And just no surprises. I mean, I think that's probably the biggest thing, whether it's the staffing plan or otherwise is just really no surprises. There's going to be, you know, life's going to throw enough surprises at us. We don't need to, you know, sort of hide the truth from one another. So if you have, you know, incentive or if you have, you know, a desire to go do something on a certain time horizon, just go tell us that, right? And by the way, if that time horizon changes, tell us that too. Just, you know, don't don't surprise us. Got it. So when the owner is not staying around or the founder and it's a new transition, it's a new management team that's stepping up, how do you keep those people incentivized? Are they getting a slight equity stake or are their bonuses just more aligned to your metrics that you want to target? Yeah, you know, it, 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 there's no magic to this, right? At the end of the day, what we want is for people to be well paid when when things go really well and that they're uh, responsible for that success and for them to share in the downside when things don't go great. Uh, as long as we have those incentives in place, we can do them in every which way and we have structured them every which way. Um, it just really depends on the situation. And, and, and I think this makes us another unusual aspect of the firm is that most private equity firms traditionally have done a two-tiered, two-tiered equity structure where you have preferred equity owned by the private equity firm. And then you have common, which is typically put into a bonus pool and then sort of, you know, you have different incentives for getting it. Most of the time, the unfortunate part is that, that common stock, unless it's a really good outcome, never hits to a, you know, a good yeah. degree. So there's a lot of illusions of comp in, in our area of the market that I think distort reality to some degree. And we just don't play any of those games, right? We have one equity structure. We typically only have seller debt, maybe a small amount of senior debt, depending on the situation. And it's everyone's, you know, rowing from the same position. We, we call it eating from the same table, right? Like if, if we do well, we want them to do well. If we don't do well, they shouldn't do well. And it's, you know, and then we try to structure it based on kind of how everyone's incentives came in. Yeah. Super cool. Okay. So Brad, do we- can we move on to deal sourcing? I think that's. I'd love to hear how Brent thinks about that. Sure, uh, Brent. What do you? How do you guys find deals? I mean, you know, this is obviously there's some secret sauce here, and you know, don't share anything you don't want to share. But at the end of the day, you know, there's basically two ways: either you, you're proprietary and you figure it out and you're scrappy and you find owners, or you go through brokers or bankers and you you look at deals where the seller's already decided he's going to sell. Talk to sure. us about your process. So I would say we don't fit into either of those buckets, which is the weirdest part. So we, we look at we look at things uh, very differently. So uh, we, we are probably the only private equity firm uh, in the world, at least, you know, the, the we're aware of that comes from a marketing background. So we got into the marketing business early on. We've owned marketing companies. We still own a couple marketing companies today. So we think a lot about how we find people, uh, how they find us, and and what incentives we're setting up for uh, selecting for the type of people that find us. And so we do zero outbound marketing, uh, meaning we are not contacting sellers. We're not, you know, cold calling. We're not sending them letters. Um, we're really not even going to doing the traditional biz dev approach either with, you know, conferences and all that. What we want to do is we want if people think that we'd be a good candidate for them, uh, whether that that candidate is coming from an intermediary or directly from a seller, and we have both, uh, we want them to reach out to us and start a conversation. 
And so all of our deal flow is inbound from people saying, hey, I think uh, this is something that might fit with you all uh, based on what we know and would love to have a conversation about it. And Seriously, so we spend... all of it? That is amazing. Did yeah, it, did it start don't... like that? How did you? No. Even... Yeah. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, we, so look, we've been at this for a while, right? And there's a reason why we've set things up. Um, you know, our website looks very different than other private equity firms uh, when we're doing things very differently. And I mean, part of it is that we want to create this selection bias where it attracts the right intermediaries, it attracts the right sellers, it attracts the right employees. And we don't have to be, um, we don't, we want to compete with the, the crowd in the sense of if somebody is just looking for the biggest check at close and they really could care less who they sell to, it would be awful for those people to come through our door and us to spend time on them, right? Because it's never going to fit. So what we want is if, if people say, look, a long-term hold structure, low debt, we want to keep the leadership team in place, we don't want to go through a radical transformation, we don't want to have the company flipped in a short period of time, uh, we just want to continue doing what we've been doing and, and really just have more resources at our disposal and you know, kind, patient, long-term capital – uh, then we want them to come through our door and we want to talk about it. And a lot of those come with intermediaries uh, and we love working. A good intermediary is fantastic. Like I can't for tell every, you. For everybody's benefit. Yeah. That, so that's a broker, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm a broker, investment banker. I mean, we, we, we kind of straddle depending on Got it. Uh, the size range, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, we, we just call them just intermediaries in general. I mean, yes, broker, investment banker, uh, whatever you want to call them. But uh, and a person who uh, is assisting the seller in uh, creating a transaction uh, is how I would how I would describe it. Um, Got it. So if somebody, you know, a broker yeah. or, or investment banker, sent you a package of a deal, right, and you actually liked the deal, uh, you liked the industry, and you wanted to you know run at it or normally would buy it, but because mm -hmm. you know it's going to be part of a larger process and there's going to be 10, 20 different firms bidding on it, do you just not even try? Do you just kind of step out because that's not your game and it's self-selecting? Or do you make a run at it? Yeah. It depends on the situation. So if we, it, we, we are happy to present the option to the seller if we think there's a shot that it would be attractive to them. So if the intermediary says to us, yeah, I think your type of you know, structure, holding period, all of that would be attractive to the seller and you know, they would find it valuable, then basically what we want to do is we want everyone else to be considered on price alone and we want to be considered on price plus other attributes. So we really try to create a, um, you know, a choice between us and some, and, you know, sort of us and everyone else. And um, most of the time they choose somebody else, right? I mean, this is not a, uh, um, this is not a high hit rate when you start getting into, you know, let's say there's going to be 50, you know, organizations, there are a hundred organizations to look at it, you know, you have a 2% or 1% chance. I think that the, by the nature of how we're able to differentiate ourselves, we probably raise it from 1% to 10% or from, you know, 2% to 20%, which is probabilistically gives us a, a tremendous edge. But in each individual deal, it still doesn't raise the probability, you know, that much. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. So I'm a, I'm a 58 year old owner of a family owned business in, in Colorado. And I, I, maybe I'm like, okay, I'm ready to start, you know, I, my, my entire retirement's wrapped up in my business. Uh, I, you know, I've been paying myself decently, but essentially most of my net worth is in the business and I'm getting older. So I want to cash out, but man, I'm not ready to quit. I got another 10 or 15 years of me. I mean, I, my son is in the business and my daughter's in the business. And I want them to take it over. And I approach a banker, that banker, if they know about you, I mean, I could see them saying, look, I, I think I have the perfect opportunity for you. I think we have a, you know, there's a way to kind of get this done without you having to feel like you're selling your soul and, 
you're going to get yep. kicked, out, kicked out of the business. Yep. Yeah. We just try to be the first stop. Right. And, and most of the time, you know, for one reason or another, we're not going to be the, the buyer. Right. I mean, it's a very low probability uh, event, but we just at least want to be a, the first stop and then say, hey, let's try to make with them. You know, we, we have a pledge on our website. We, you know, we treat everyone uh, well. We're highly responsive. We don't play hide the ball. We just try to be very transparent in what we do. And so what that does is it builds trust with the intermediaries. It builds trust with you know, the sellers who talk to other sellers right over time. And they say, you know what, go, go stop at Adventures, see if they're interested. If they are, they'll treat you really well. And if not, they'll also treat you well. They'll just tell you up front that it's not going to work and why it won't work. But yeah, we, we like to structure, we like to find situations, as you described, where uh, there's a lot of incentives other than just getting the most cash at close and walking away. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we, we, when we're happy to structure transition plans over time where we do have uh, in, in a few of the businesses, we have the, the sons and daughters of the founders still working in the business. And it's fantastic. We love them. It's great. Okay. So when you're looking at these businesses, can you give us kind of a back of the envelope approach to how you think about, you know, what is attractive business for you guys and, and what jumps out at you? Yeah. So I would say that um, it's got to be first in an industry that we think uh, will be around in 20 years. Yeah, that's so good. you're going to hold a business in perpetuity. I mean, you got to be able to get into something that has visibility. Does this, does this, uh, Brent, does this mean you will not really look at tech given how quickly that those industries can, can fluctuate? Well, it's interesting because I think that tech, it broadly, uh, you'd be more correct than not by saying that. But I think there's a lot of nuance to, I mean, for instance, some bank technology uh, hasn't really been changed since the 80s, maybe early 90s. So there is some durability to underlying technology because of you know the entrenchment that what we're looking for is how sticky is the product and how valuable, what, what's the value proposition they're offering the client and how important is it for the client from a risk reward standpoint to replace or even think about replacing that um, uh, potential piece of software or, or really whatever type of product they're selling in. So, I mean, I think it, like anything else, there's a lot of nuance to all these different things. You can look at the same business that, that looks the, you know identical at 30,000 feet and you get down to 5,000 feet and there are just such different dynamics involved. But go back to your original question. The, you know, the first thing is the durability of the industry, the, you know, how susceptible the industry is to obvious changes, pattern changes, you know, patterns of change, I would say, that make the, uh, the business vulnerable. Right. I mean, uh, we've seen this over and over again. There's just certain industries that have a secular headwind. And if you get into those businesses, it doesn't matter, you know, how good you go at it. It's just a really hard business to uh, to win in. So, you know, first and foremost, we look at that. We, second of all, I would say look at the team and say, OK, w- why has this business, one, been sustainable for, for a very long period of time? We're typically uh, getting involved in organizations that have been around for at least 15 years, if not 50 years. You know, maybe occasionally we get involved in a, you know, somewhere between 10 and 15 years, you know, pretty occasionally. We want them to be around for quite a while and well-seasoned. And then we say, OK, why have they stayed smaller? Right. Because if we're getting involved with them, they're smaller and and we try to understand, has it been a risk choice? Has it been that they are dominating their sort of niche of the market or uh, is there something else at play that that would enable or unlock them to be able to uh, to to grow into a a much larger firm? And so we're trying to understand the business beyond that. I mean, you know, a, a willing and ready seller. Is something that you know yeah, sounds I've, obvious. I've found motivated but... seller has quickly risen to the top of my list of things I think about. 
<laughs> yeah, well, we've, we've unfortunately, again, uh, we've learned all of our important lessons uh, uh, by uh, by failure. But yeah, we've, we've had quite a few situations where everything looks to be set up perfectly. They say all the right things. And uh, ultimately, there's there's a lot of mind changing that goes on. And look, it's a, to have sympathy. I mean, it's a it's a stressful process. And selling a family business, especially if it's a second or third generation, you know, there's a little bit of a feeling of, you know, uh, the good old times are gone. And, um, you know, I, I totally get it. We, we actually try uh, maybe another unusual piece that I haven't talked about is we actually try to talk people out of selling us. Uh, their business. Uh, reverse psychology, and, smart. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, I guess maybe to some degree, but I think beyond that, it's more of um, it's going to be really, really hard. And unless you're incredibly committed to to making it happen, then the chances of getting across the finish line are, are uh, you know slim to none. Yeah, which which again might put you at a disadvantage sometimes to the firm that's saying, "Don't worry, we can close this thing in ninety days. This is going to be easy." And you know, you know that's just not true. Yeah, or even worse than that, uh, we, we recently got a situation where they, um, uh, one of our uh, uh, other competitive firms, claimed they could close it in 30 days. Stop. And uh, we said, "There's no way that you can get to know somebody, do full due diligence, and document a deal in 30 days without cutting corners." And they they, they chose to go with the other firm. Didn't deal didn't close, but you know it is what it is. Well, so let's talk about due diligence. So after you get the <laughs> the deal signed up. And you're you're into due diligence. What like what are the major things that uh, tend to kill a deal for you, or the the things you're trying to dig into and and make sure you're verifying? Well, so the way that, that we think about due diligence is, you know, first, uh, what did you tell us uh, was true, and and is it true? And and second, what did you tell us was true that isn't true? Uh, so we're trying to you know verify the sort of big big chunky things, and then what are the what are the things that you don't know uh, that we need to know if they're true or not? So a lot of times in due diligence, it's a it's an exploration process. We actually hear this quite frequently. It's an exploration process that educates the sellers as much as it educates us. I mean, you know, they've been running this business, um, but for the most part, they're not paying attention to some of the uh, smaller details that you know maybe some hidden risks that uh, we bring up that they're like, oh gosh, we haven't thought about that in a long time. I don't know. And, you know, we have to go figure it out together. Typically, you know, our exploratory due diligence is 45-ish days. I would say is kind of the, the norm, maybe 30, 30 to 45. Brent, or, um, just, just for clarity, mm-hmm. is that pre-LOI or is that... Um, post-LOI. Okay, so you, post-LOI. Okay, so you've, yeah. you've signed up and you're, you're under exclusivity, you've signed a letter of intent, and now you're digging in for kind of 30 to 45 days. Yeah, and, and we really try to have it be, like I said, a collaboration. So we don't want to, you know, just set up a, a, a wall and have them lob in information over and us to pour over it. I mean, we really try to ask a lot of questions, um, spend some time and, you know, quite a bit of time in person together and, and make it as enjoyable. And I know that sounds funny, but as enjoyable as possible, right? It's a way to get to know each other and understand how to communicate with one another. And, you know, we want to be educated uh, partners in the business. And this is one of the things that baffles me about how um, some firms handle due diligence where they just outsource everything. To me, it makes no sense at all to outsource uh, uh, the bulk of due diligence. You know, we spend quite a bit of money to keep a staff on hand that that is, uh, you know, is fully dedicated to diligencing deals uh, because we want that to be retained in the firm. We want that knowledge to stay with us uh, after we uh, consummate the deal. So yeah, so we're, we're we're you know examining everything from you know the quality of the the earnings of the company, I'm looking at the accounting records. We're looking at uh, everything from insurance to environmental to intellectual property, and really just trying to again figure out what we're uh, what we're really buying. 
And out of those, what, what tends to kill the deals the most, the accounting? Um, you know, <laughs> I would say the accounting, not really. Uh, I would say that, that the biggest thing is to find something that either they knew about that they didn't disclose, uh, which is, you know, uh, an issue of ethics, um, or that they didn't know about that we all look at and say, ooh, that really changes the deal. And, you know, oftentimes it's not a challenging breakup. Uh, if, if the, you know, our, our close ratio is, is, uh, I think very high. Um, I would, you know, we close over 50% of the deals that, that we go under letter of intent on. And so, yeah, yeah. Which is dramatically higher than, than I, you know, I, I think the market It's hard, you know, <laughs> the information in this segment of the market, I mean, this is a whole different topic that we could yeah, talk it's about. It's so biased, right. And the, and the information is so biased that it's really hard to get a good feel for, you know, what is the norm, uh, what's the base rate. So, but, you know, we, we really try to, before we're going to go under LOI, we never play the games of we're going to throw out a big number and then try to talk them down during due diligence or anything like that. We, we're going to, you know, put something out there. We're going to put a structure out there that we want to close on. And if we can't, whatever we find, if we can't do that, we've only gone back one time and asked for an adjustment of purchase price because there was just a fundamental misunderstanding of the accounting of the firm and the mis- mispresentation of that. And, you know, they said, we readily understand, we agree, we just changes the deal to us where we can't get it done now, but let's stay in touch. So we always try to, you know, we never want to burn a bridge. You know, we always try to treat people fairly. Brent, in this diligence process, how much of your time is spent inside the company, sort of internally, like the kind of stuff you mentioned, accounting and and understanding the the business itself? And how much of your time is spent thinking about the market and external factors? So I would say 80-20, 80% is internal. We really want to understand the the, the firm and, and, you know, why they are doing what they're doing. You know, our belief is that they have a track record and a history. So we don't, you know, we never structure a deal where you have to believe a lot for the deal to, to make sense. So we're really trying to more understand, uh, you know, what is the reality that they have? What's the track record? And trying to tune in on why they've been successful. I mean, all these firms, if, if we're involved in them, are, are going to be very successful firms for the, for the owners. And so what's the source of that success? And, and how can we transition the leadership over time? You know, what are the pitfalls with that? You know, we're going to look at those, you know, what I call secular trends to some degree, as well as competition. Although, you know, we've really never competition is another interesting topic. It's 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 rarely mattered, uh, and often it's kind of the boogeyman that that you're able to to you know put all your fears into. Um, we just don't see, especially in our segment of the market. I mean, the the world's a big place. The economy is huge. And usually, you know, far more firms commit suicide than commit homicide, right? I mean, you're not going to get outcompeted typically uh, unless there's just a really big sea change in your industry. I wonder how much of that is a function of the type of industries you're looking at, because my partner and I are focused specifically on software right now. And oftentimes in software, it can be a winner-take-all market or, you know, a market where maybe, you know, a competitor that, you know, maybe not even know about can grab 80% of the market share in three to five years. I feel like some of the businesses you're looking at, you know, there is some almost regional defensibility, you know, that, you know, you're not going to get a pool company maybe from Massachusetts that's coming into Arizona anytime super soon. Uh, is that fair? I mean, you know, cause I, it feels like to me, we spend a lot more time thinking about the market than I think you might. And I'm just kind of yeah. wondering about the difference there. Yeah. And, and maybe you're right. Maybe we're wrong. I think this is, this is the thing, right? There's all different kinds of flavors, right? People put like private equity in this big bucket and, and sort of think about it, hit it with a blunt hammer. And it's really, it's such a nuanced 
industry in the sense of you're taking a capital structure, you're superimposing it on a previously existing organization, and it really just comes down to what is the history of that organization, what is that capital structure, and what's the people attached to that, and that's where all the nuance just gets I mean, it, it just leads you into all different kinds of directions. And so for us, we think about getting involved in very stable organizations. So like rule number one is do no harm, right? The last thing we want to do is come into an organization that's had a long track record of success. And we come in and say, oh, guess what? We want to change X, Y, Z. And, and by the way, we need to be highly reactive to these competitors. And it's like, well, look, like <laughs> if they've been successful and you keep the same leadership team in place and the same style of operation – what are the chances that things are going to radically change in a short period of time? I mean, you're going to have bad bounces, but I mean, it's, it's not, the, the, the odds are not high. Yeah. This is interesting because I feel like so many people get caught up in due diligence because you're never going to get everything you want on the checklist, right? There's always going to be one or two things where you're like, gosh, I don't know about that, but on the whole, it feels pretty good. And, I think, yep. uh, if I recall, I think you had a, a lunch with uh, the Oracle of Omaha, and he, didn't he say <laughs> something on due diligence where, hey, uh, due diligence is, is my purchase price or something to that effect? Yeah, I was I was very fortunate. Um, uh, Ted Seides, who has become a, a good friend, uh, helped the O'Shaughnessy family do due diligence on us and uh, really has become a great friend. He, he invited uh, Patrick and I to uh, have dinner with uh, uh, with Mr. Buffett in, in Omaha. And we just got to spend a, a, it was just a wonderful three, three and a half hours together. And yes, one of his quotes, the only, I think, quote that I publicly uh, uh, said coming out of the dinner was, price is my due diligence. That's what he, that's what he said to me as I uh, pushed him on, on their due diligence strategy. And he, uh, uh, I was convinced that there was a lot more to it than he let on. And uh, he did a pretty darn good job of convincing me otherwise. Yeah, which... <laughs> It's just, I mean, like I get it. It's kind of a fun comment, but it goes back to, you know, we're not Warren Buffett, right? So we don't, we don't, we don't have some of the resources and the brand he has, and so we price does matter to at least a lot the folks that we're talking to, and I'm sure the folks that you're talking to, and yeah, um, it, it is hard. It's hard. You're not going to get a smoking deal out there right now, right? You might get a, you can get a fair deal and a reasonable deal, but there, you know, there's just there's no free lunch. Yeah, well, I mean, a smoking deal requires a forced seller, right? I mean, that's that's the interesting part. I mean, until there's a, uh, you know. Uh, a major downturn and there's some pain being felt. I mean, there's just really not going to be four sellers. Totally. And so let's talk about that. What, what kind of multiples are you seeing right now in businesses and how do you even think about uh, what's the appropriate multiple to pay? Well, okay. So, so multiples uh, are all just, as you all know, just a function of what, what are the future prospects of the company? So I think that it, it's really industry specific. So we're looking for, you know, in, in our, our area, you know, businesses are growing five to maybe 10% per year in an up cycle, maybe 12 to 15 if you really catch a good year. And then there's going to be some cyclicality to it, right? So you can't just take sort of a, a previous trailing 12 months and say, okay, great, we're going to take a snapshot. That's the permanent earnings of the company. Those were forever, you know, the trees are going to grow to the sky. Of course. So when you look at, yeah, when you look at those and you do what, you know, so what we think about is a full uh, cycle blend of earnings. So we want to say, okay, look, if, if an average cycle is anywhere between eight and call it 14 years, right, with maybe 10 and a half, 11 being the, the median, you know, we want to look and say, okay, can we get a good trajectory of the company? You know, 2008, 2009, weird time, obviously it skews everything, but, you know, maybe it's not a severe downturn like that. Um, but it's, you know, maybe a half that or two thirds that uh, of a downturn. What does that what does that do to revenue? How do you know how operationally leverage? And so when we when we factor all this in, 
Um, we end up in our area of the market, you know, paying about um, market multiple. You know, I would say for a call it three, four million dollar earning company um, that is, you know, fairly stable that has, you know, some cyclicality to it. We're, you know, we're paying around four, maybe four and a half times. Uh, depending on the situation, depending on how fast the growth's been and the you know the trajectory and the cyclicality and all those things, I would say you know you start getting into traditional private equity, which sits above us, and and uh, and even to some degree, there's been a been an odd swell in the what I would call millionish dollar, maybe million to two million dollar uh, earning market, country club deals, search funds, you know former executives, those types of that, that are that are driving some competition uh, for assets. But it's just so hard to get a deal done. That's the other thing, right? Like it, we, we saw a deal the other day that a, uh, a fundless sponsor had put like a seven times multiple on a $3 million earning company. And we just said, there's no way that they're going to be able to go out and get the capital for that. Hmm. Just no way. And they can't. And so there's a lot of gumming up the works that we see going on with people who uh, are incentivized only to get deals done with throwing out, you know, really high offers. And then they end up anchoring the seller, which is just a disservice to everyone. If you look at, you know, multiples like Pepperdine report that comes out uh, once a quarter and then a more in-depth once a year, we, you know, we try to track that and, and multiples have stayed relatively stable in, in our segment of the market for the last, you know, five years. I mean, it really hasn't been that much change. So Okay. So Brent, um, we thought we would wrap this up with a few fun, quick questions. You don't, you don't have to spend a ton of time on each of these. We thought, it, you know, these are kind of the, some of the things that private equity firms or investors think about when they're evaluating businesses. Uh, given how contrarian you are, I'm excited to hear your answers on these. Is it okay if we run through a few of these? Sounds great. Okay, let's kick it off with customer concentration. So everyone hates massive customer concentration where maybe one customer or two customers is accounting for a vast majority of your revenues. How do you guys think about it? How much is too much customer concentration? Uh, I would say uh, never too much is too much. Uh, we have worked with firms that have an incredible custom, customer concentration and almost none. And I think all of these factors, that I'll preface kind of my response to all these as, these are all factors that paint a picture of reality. So if you have a um, uh, like we were looking at a deal recently that that if you sort of roll up all of the where all the money's coming from, there's like a huge customer concentration. But the way the money flows down from this sort of mega entity, uh, it really flows down through 20 independent relationships. Well, do you call that customer concentration or not? Because you look at it one way and you say, okay, would would that mega customer ever stop needing this thing? No. Uh, Would they ever do a big deal where we'd be cut out? Probably not. Very unlikely. So really, the, the issue is, would all of these, you know, sort of subcontractors to the to the big organization ever collude and somehow, you know, and, and the odds are very low, right? You know, we bought a business where a big chunk of it was a military contract, and we had to get comfortable with the sustainability of that. I think that the, the way that we can structure deals and have the flexibility to get creative, we can take a lot of that risk and share it with the uh, seller where they, again, their superior position and knowledge, they know more. Okay, gotcha. So then let's next one, growth. Uh, again, everyone loves to see fast-growing companies and, and kind of getting in the, in the early stages of a growing company. How much do you care about growth? Or would you buy a flat business? Would you buy a declining growth business? We'd be struggling to buy a declining uh, declining business. We'd really understand uh, maybe there's some really good temporary uh, reasons for that decline. What I would say is that the thing that we kick out of the process uh, almost just right away is that there's been ras- rapid recent growth. So I know this is very contrarian to what you just said. Everyone wants growth. We actually don't want growth because that growth comes with an instability. 
sort of the what goes up must come down type thinking. And so we've seen over and over again firms that have gone from 5 million to 12 million to 22 million to, you know, whatever of revenue where they just can't sustain that pace and they end up creating so much friction operationally within the company that it ends up imploding uh, and, and being a really dangerous situation. And so we actually would rather see a firm have sustainable stair-stepped growth over time than have this really rapid jake. Seems like you're you're not really looking for sexy businesses, although perhaps you you might someday. Uh, but are there any industries that you won't touch? Any you know third rail type industries? Yeah. Well, so so we always think about um, what do we know about the industry and um, you know, who else is out there that does a really great job? So I think part of it is we're, we're biased against software, mostly because we know some really incredible software investors that are frankly smarter than us and know more than us. Um, That's great. We, so Grayson doesn't have to compete against you. That's good for you, Grayson. No, yeah. no Thanks, way. Brent. Exactly. Exactly. No, you, you guys are, you guys are way smarter than we are. Um, so we, um, we also, you know, I had a, a guy one time tell me, he said, if you ever see an oil deal coming out of Texas, just know I passed on it twice. So I think there are <laughs> um, there are segments of the market that are so insulated uh, and, and, and everyone knows each other that if you see a, a, you know, a smoking hot deal coming out of a, an area that you don't know a ton about, why am I the lucky buyer? So we, you know, we typically, if it's commodities based, um, if there's some, you know, very clear uh, interlocking industry ties that everyone else is passing on it within the industry, it probably means we're going to get taken for a ride. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm always skeptical when a, the seller comes to me with their deal, that they want to sell their property. I'm like, okay, well, what's wrong with this thing? So it's interesting that, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's how you approach it sometimes too. Yep. How about asset pricing? How bad on a scale of one to 10, uh, do you feel like it's getting better? Or is it getting worse? We kind of touched on this, but love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, so you have these really interesting countervailing forces that I think when it comes to valuation and asset prices, especially in our segment of the market, you have one, which is the vast majority of high earning companies are baby boomer owned. So when I say high earning, I'm talking about our area of the market, right? So typically three to eight million, maybe up to, we can go up to about 12, 15 million in earnings, depending on the structure of the deal. But really three to eight million in earnings is our uh, sweet spot. You look at it and you say, okay, almost all the assets earning three to eight million dollars are sustainably, I should say, not just like sort of one time pops, but sustainably organized uh, to earn that. Uh, are almost all baby boomer owned. And that's sort of a tidal wave that, that you know, I think has that the wave has been pushed, uh, but I think is coming where a vast majority of them do not have uh, the ability to transition the business outside of bringing in a, a financial buyer or selling to a strategic. So you have that as being a, a headwind to valuations. And then you have this tailwind, which is everyone's looking for yield. Everyone's looking for returns and private equity firms are continuing to come down market. I think that they are finding out uh, at least the ones that I, you know, have good relationships with, we, you know, we talk openly about it. Like they're finding out that, that a company that is making five million dollars a year, that's been, you know, family owned, that stayed small for a long time, is just a fundamentally different company and DNA and structured organization than something that's doing fifteen, twenty million dollars of earnings. Um, just really different companies. And so I think, it, you know, there's some some insulation in our segment of the market from from down market. Uh, and it's really hard as a traditional private equity firm to, to use a two and 20 structure to be able to get into our area of the market. It's just the economics are really challenging to make it work. So and then, you know, up market, I would say, sort of the bottom up, you know, <laughs> it's really hard to put together 20 million dollars. So let's say it's a five million dollar earning company and you're paying a four times multiple on that. 
Well, you know, $20 million is still 20 million bucks. Like that's a heck of a country club if you can pass the hat. And so, you know, you really do need to have institutional, you know, professional capital get involved in a deal with that size. And there just aren't that many people out there that can do that. So I think that, you know, there's some natural insulation, but I would say the multiples in our area valuations are pretty darn stable. I mean, we're not seeing anything going down. We're not seeing much going up. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, people talk a big game, but if you look at the multiples of deals that are actually getting done, it's just, it's about what it's always been. Well, Brent, I think we should probably wrap this up. I would say, uh, you know, speaking personally, I, I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's it's fun to talk to someone who's taken a unique approach to to this business. Um, I don't think there's a lot of folks out there doing it like you. So I applaud you for for the path that you've taken. Well, thanks, guys. Appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, it was a it was a wonderful conversation. Before we go, where can folks find out more about you if they want to learn more about Brent and maybe read some of your content? I think you, you're you're a great writer. Just Thank tell you. people where they can find you. Yeah, I mean the best place is probably just to go to the website Adventures with a dot before the es, and I'm on all the social media, Twitter and LinkedIn. Just ping me. You know, we try to make ourselves readily available. Yeah, happy to happy to be helpful if we can help. Okay, great. Well, thanks, Brent, for being on today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Alternative Investor. Since you made it this far, you should take a second to subscribe to the podcast and join our email list. There, you'll receive additional insights and insider access to the world of alternative investments. Just visit thealternativeinvestorshow.com.